Today's passage is from Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove to myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. We are tempted every week, even this moment to believe that we can be justified by the works of our hands. We pray that you would help us see the gospel rightly this morning. And Father, we will hear a word from you this morning. If you would be so gracious as to speak as we open the scriptures. But we pray that we would leave this place not not being merely hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of your word. Would you empower us to be those who hear your word and then respond by faith and obey it. We need your spirit to help us with that. We pray that he would move now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in the middle of our Galatians series. Well, we're not technically in the middle of it yet, but we are progressing through our series uh, in the book of Galatians. And every single week, I come to a passage and... You know, we originally planned for verses 11 through 21 to be preached this morning, and every single week I come to the passage and I'm like, man, that just a single verse, we could take one verse this week, and then the next verse the next week, there's so many rich truths that are, that are in the book of Galatians. Paul, so far in, in the letter, he's writing to the churches that are in Galatia, Gentile Christians. So far he has set out to defend his gospel because the situation in Galatia is that there are some Jewish Christians who have come in who are teaching something that is false. They are teaching that in order to be a part of God's people, in order to receive full acceptance, not only do you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to follow the law. Not just the, the Ten Commandments, but you need to follow the ceremonial law, and then you can be uh, counted as part of God's people. 
They were especially emphasizing circumcision. We talked about that last week, that in order to fully be accepted into God's people, you need to be circumcised. This week, this week, we see two apostles who are standing at odds with one another. And it it got me thinking about the health of any local church. A very dangerous concern in any local church, not just ours, is superficial church health. Superficial church health is dangerous. Superficial church health means you can look healthy and not be healthy. That's, that's frightening. You know, people who end up diagnosed with cancer, once you hear that news, you look at someone, so they, they're so healthy, you know? They appear so healthy, but there's something happening within that they, they didn't even realize themselves. That can happen in the church. How do we evaluate the health of a church anyway? We could give so many answers to that. People have written books on it. But let's just think of two major general areas, okay? Just simple for anyone. You don't need to be Mark Dever to understand this. Doctrine and culture. Okay, what we believe and how we live. Let's consider those two areas for a second. I think we would all agree that a church that's very involved in the community, helps others, loves others, cares for those in need, but doesn't believe or teach the biblical gospel is not a healthy church. They give the impression they're a healthy church by what they do. So maybe, maybe their culture and how they live is, is right. It's good to care for the poor. It's good to be involved in the community. It's, it's good to impact others for, for the good. But if they don't believe the biblical gospel, if, if they deny something crucial about Jesus's identity or something crucial about Jesus's work, then that's not a healthy church. But consider the flip side, because I can promise you, we, we just had an elder retreat last week. We're not in danger of that. We're not in danger of that at all. Consider the flip side. What about a church that believes and teaches sound doctrine, but doesn't put it into practice? A church with sound gospel doctrine without sound gospel culture is not a healthy church. It's not. It's not a healthy church. Like I said, I'm so grateful for our church's commitment to sound doctrine. It's not, praise God, at this season in the life of our church, that's not an issue. That's not an issue for us. Our commitment to sound doctrine is not just an important step, it is an essential step in us becoming a healthy church. However, it is entirely possible for us to appear healthy by what we believe and by what we teach while remaining unhealthy in how we live. Our doctrine can be very healthy. Our culture can be very toxic. And if we have a toxic culture, we don't have a healthy church. In the same way, if you have a healthy culture, but you have toxic doctrine, you do not have a healthy church. So here's something that we can pull from our passage this morning. And there are probably a million different little nuggets of truth that we could pull from this passage. But one that's crucial and applies directly to us. Our lives and our church will either prove to be confirmation of the gospel we believe, or or our lives and our church will prove to be contradictions of the gospel we believe. 
Our lives, our church, will either be confirmation of the gospel that we preach and teach and believe, or we will be contradictions of the very message that we teach. Now, if you, if you like me, have ever experienced a disconnect between what you believe and how you live, then you are in good company. But I'm not the good company, okay? I'm not the good company. The apostle Peter, the apostle Peter, someone who lived life with Jesus himself, he found himself experiencing a disconnect in Antioch, a serious disconnect. Merely 10 to 15 years after Jesus died, rose, and ascended. And the Apostle Paul, who is writing the letter of Galatians, he lets us know that he confronted and corrected Peter. Paul records this scene for us, and then he, he's so helpful for us. After he describes the scene, now he's just he's writing... He's, not, he's no longer describing what happened with Peter, verses 15 through 21. This isn't something that he said to Peter, but it's something that Peter needed to hear, and it's something that we need to hear. So Paul records the scene for us in Antioch, and then he uses the encounter to teach us about the order and the centrality of the gospel. So really, there are two considerations for us this morning. First is the problem, second is the remedy. Okay, The problem is there is often a disconnect between gospel doctrine and gospel culture. All right, so we'll talk about the problem. There's a disconnect between gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And then I want to talk about what I believe Paul gives us here. Two building blocks of gospel culture. If we want to build a healthy culture in our church, I believe Paul gives us two crucial building blocks. And, and those two are the order of the gospel, the order of the gospel, and the centrality of the gospel. All right, so let's consider each of these. First, the problem, this disconnect, the disconnect between gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Here's what we, here's what we read. Peter, or Paul records this for us. But when Cephas, Cephas, uh, Aramaic name for, for Peter, so when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before, certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? All right, let's unpack that. So, after standing side by side with Peter in Jerusalem, it's recorded for us in, in uh, Galatians 2, 1 through 10, standing side by side for him, contending with this same gospel they both preach and believe, Paul finds himself face to face with Peter. He confronts Peter because Peter was in the wrong. Peter had done something so heinous that Paul actually uses the language here, he stood condemned. Now, what did Peter do? What did Peter do that, that would cause Paul to say this? Here's what Peter did. He drew back, he separated himself, he refused to fellowship with, and he rejected the Gentile Christians in Antioch. That's what he did. Why is this so heinous? Why, why does this cause Paul to publicly rebuke Peter? To say here, right at the beginning, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What's so heinous about Peter withdrawing 
from the Gentiles and, and no longer sharing meals with them. Well, we need some background, okay? So Peter is a Jewish Christian, and, and he made it a normal practice to fellowship with Gentile Christians. He hung out with Gentiles, he ate with Gentiles, he laughed, cried, talked with Gentiles. He, he, just, he did life with them whenever he was around them. Uh, Antioch was a city that had a population of about 250,000 people at the time, and about 25,000 of those people were Jewish. So when Peter visited, visited Antioch, and especially when he's visiting churches, he's mainly interacting with Gentile Christians. And every single time that Peter would come around, and this time included, Peter is treating the Gentile Christians the same way that he would treat the Jewish Christians. There was no difference here. Now, that in and of itself is a massive phenomenon, okay, that, that Peter and these Gentile Christians would share fellowship in this way because Jewish purity laws prohibited Jews from coming into contact with anything unclean, anything unclean. So these laws were very diverse. There were unclean foods. There were unclean clothes. There were unclean people. Gentiles did not observe these Jewish traditions. They ate bacon, right? They, they, they ate a ham sandwich, you know, every now and then. Um, they ate food that had been offered to idols uh, before it was sold in the marketplace. They didn't participate in ritual washings. They, they ate those juicy steaks that hadn't properly been drained of blood according to the law of Moses. So in the eyes of Jews... Gentiles were unclean, they were unrefined, they were lawbreakers. But through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus fulfilled and nullified the ceremonial law of Moses. No longer did the purity law separate God's people from the world. It was faith in Jesus that separated us from the world. The law served its purpose. The law, the ceremonial law even, it showed us that God is clean and pure and holy, and we are not. And we could never clean ourselves up enough to be worthy of him. It served its purpose. But with the coming of Jesus, Jesus took our sin, was counted as unclean, so that we might be washed white as snow. Peter knew this. Peter knew this. That's why he hung out with Gentiles all the time. Peter was doing life with Jesus when Jesus himself declared foods to be clean, all foods to be clean. You remember from Mark 7? If you don't, you can turn there later. But in Mark 7, Jesus himself says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So Peter was with Jesus when Jesus taught this. He knew this. But Peter had also received a special vision from God about this very issue, about Jewish food laws. And you can turn here later. We're not going to take the time to do it here. I'm going to read it for you, though. In Acts 10, in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 15, this is what Luke records for us. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened. And something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is, that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. So Peter, in his interactions with Jesus and through this special vision, he sees all foods are clean. He eat whatever he wants, you know, and, and not be violating this special law that would, that would put him, that would jeopardize his fellowship with God and with God's people. So 
Peter stopped keeping the Jewish purity laws as a part of his regular worship. Yeah, he may keep them every now and then, but he's not keeping them as a part of his worship to God any longer. He realized that Jesus broke down a wall and he built a bridge. And so no longer were there cultural barriers between Jews and Gentiles. So Peter, he fellowshiped with Gentiles any chance he could. He celebrated this gospel freedom by being with them, and he would eat whatever they put on the table. I mean, uh, there are some things I wouldn't eat, you know, but it's not because of, you know, purity laws. It's just I, I'm a little picky. But, but P- Peter would eat whatever was on the table. So what's up here? Because here we have Peter. And he's hanging out with his Gentile Christian buddies. And they're hanging out, they're laughing, they're having a great time. They're sharing meals. And I love how Paul says, he's like, hey, before certain men from James came down here, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, just like he always had. But when they came, when they came to town, he drew back and he separated himself. And he tells us why fearing the circumcision party we're not given very many details about this i wish i wish we had more we don't know what was said we don't know how intense or really if any pressure was actually applied to peter from this group we don't know we can assume that but we don't know they may have just showed up all we know is that there were some some jewish christians who came from james who came from jerusalem and by their very presence peter feared whether whether from outside pressure or just something within him feared what the circumcision party what those who took the law more seriously than anybody else he feared what they would say what they would think and out of his fear of this legalistic group peter rebuilt a wall jesus had destroyed he withdrew from the gentiles he declined invitations to dinner and peter was so influential that other Jewish Christians who were there with him, they were like, oh, well, Peter is no longer eating with them. I don't really know why he's doing it, but he probably knows why. I'm not going to do it either. We're going to withdraw as well. Even Barnabas, that had to hurt Paul so much. His, his close partner in mission, Barnabas even, he says, was led astray. You can almost feel the betrayal as he says that. So that's the situation. Now con- consider Paul's rebuke. Paul criticizes Peter's fear of man and his hypocrisy, right? So he mentions his fear. He was like, he separated himself, he drew back, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So essentially he's saying, Peter, how dare you force the Gentiles to live according to Jewish religious customs in order to have your friendship when you yourself don't even follow those customs? How could you be so hypocritical, Peter? But that's not Paul's greatest concern. His greatest concern is not Peter's fear. His greatest concern is not Peter's hypocrisy. They're involved with this. Paul's greatest concern, which is his motivation for publicly rebuking Peter, is their conduct was not in step with the gospel. Their conduct was not in step with the gospel. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said deceive us before them all. That's when the rebuke came. Paul isn't concerned about Peter's doctrine. Okay, he's not saying here, Peter, we agreed on what the gospel was, 
when we were in Jerusalem together, and now you have changed your mind, your convictions have shifted, let's go do a Bible study, and let's, let's talk about what you believe, because you're believing, you're confessing something that's not true. That's not the issue here. Paul is concern, concerned with this example of a toxic culture he's just seen. Peter wasn't properly appropriating the gospel in this specific area of his life. Peter wasn't appropriately applying the gospel. He wasn't walking in step with the gospel. He has strayed, not in what he believes, but in how he lives. Your life, Peter, is inconsistent with the gospel that you believe. And here's why. The gospel creates a culture that reflects its nature. All right? The gospel creates a culture that reflects its nature. Peter by refusing fellowship to these, these Gentiles out of fear of what the, the Jewish Christians might say because he would be participating in uh, breaking the ceremonial law of Moses, Peter is experiencing a disconnect between the gospel he believes and the way that he's living in this moment. His way of life was inconsistent with the gospel. So he believed, think about what Peter believes, because he believes a true gospel. Peter believes that Jesus broke down a wall and built a bridge. He believes that all people believing in Jesus are united to God and united to one another, and that there are no other barriers to the fellowship that can be. But he was living as if something more was needed. He's practically, through his actions, saying to the Gentile Christians in Antioch, our common faith in Jesus is not enough for common fellowship. It's not enough. You need to follow the law before I will treat you as family. Before we can share these meals, before we can get close and, and really, really be good and be tight, um, you're going to have to start observing the law. Peter knows that's not true. He experiences a disconnect. Do you see how unhealthy this kind of culture would be in our church? Do you see it? And if Peter was susceptible to this kind of disconnect, I promise you I am. And I promise you, you are as well. We are prone to allow the fear of the opinions of others to lead us into hypocrisy. And we are prone to live in a way that contradicts the gospel that we believe. But think about for a second, we do vision stuff. Think about this sad vision. This is a sad vision. Just imagine for a second, use your imagination, what kind of place this would be if the gospel we believe had no bearing on our lives. And we believe it, and we all believe it, and it's true. The gospel we believe is true. And we sing it, and we profess it, and we read about it, and we preach it, and we do Bible studies about it, but it, it ends up having no bearing on our lives. How tragic would it be if Jesus is only seen in a statement of faith that we have, but not in our lives? Think about it. If we were a place taught about forgiveness but didn't offer any forgiveness if we were a church that taught about grace but then we elevated our own personal preferences as requirements for full fellowship and full acceptance what if we taught about love but then we're just cold with one another what if we taught about evangelism and discipleship and missions, and yet we do nothing to impact our community? We do nothing to impact the nations. We do nothing. We have no concern for bringing, inviting others in to the kingdom of God. Do you know what we would be? 
We would be a church that appears healthy by doctrine, but is actually unhealthy by our practice. Paul has shown us how real that dreaded possibility is. It's a real possibility, and we wouldn't even know it. Peter had to be confronted. He didn't even know it. He couldn't even see how inconsistent his life was with the gospel that he believed. So I'm so thankful for this passage because not only does it serve as a warning, it serves as a guide. Paul shows us that that possibility is real, but he also shows us how we can build a church culture that is consistent with the gospel, that bleeds gospel. And he gives us two building blocks, okay? Two building blocks. And they come in verses 15 through 21. So I want to show you something really quickly here. The first building block of a healthy gospel culture is the order of the gospel. You'll understand what I mean by that in just a second, but if you're taking notes, the order of the gospel. We have to get the order of the gospel right, and we need to make sure that we're not just confessing the order of the gospel rightly, but we're living the order of the gospel rightly. So the question of all major religions, the question that they are all seeking to answer is very simple. How can I be right with God? That's the question. Most major world religions, philosophies that, that have God involved is, how can I be right with God? It's, it's, it's almost an admission on the front end. It's, it's presumed, I'm not right with God. I, I, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with the way that I behave. I, I tend to harm others. I tend to harm myself through, through what I believe and through what I say and through what I do. How can I be right with God? Christianity actually gives a very clear and unique answer to that question. It's an answer that Paul was worth, uh, that Paul believed was worth dying for. And it's an answer that he's striving to give us in this letter. He's presenting it and he's defending it. And it starts in verse 15. So I love the transition that he gives. He finishes the account and now he's just writing to the Galatians. And here's what he says. Referring still to Peter and himself and other Jewish Christians. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I love how Paul, he leaves no room for, for disagreement or, or a lack of clarity. He says, you're not justified by works of the law. You are justified by faith in Jesus. We have believed in Jesus to be justified because it only comes by faith in Jesus. And then he, at the end he says it again, but, and not by works of the law. Why? Because works of the law will justify no one. Christianity teaches that a person becomes right with God or justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. There is a clear order to the gospel. Here's the order, and I'm actually indebted to J. Gresham Machen. Uh, you can look him up later, uh, scholar from the early 1900s, for this, for this little insight here. There's a clear order to the gospel. Three, three steps. Step number one, you believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. Step number two, then you are saved. You believe in Jesus, then you are saved. Step number three, then you live a life of obedience. All right? You believe in Jesus, then you are saved. 
then you live a life of obedience and love and and goodness and, and the rest. The circumcision party that Peter feared and Peter himself by his actions changed the order just a little bit. All right, so if the first order, the gospel order is believe in Jesus, then you are saved, then you live a life of obedience. The circumcision party and Peter by his actions, they have this second order, this alternate order, this other order. Believe in Jesus, that's the same. That's the same. Faith in Jesus is required. Believe in Jesus, obey, then you are saved. Believe in Jesus, obey, obey the law, do good, then you'll be saved. It's subtle. Same elements, the order is just switched a little bit. And every single person in this room is either living like we follow the first order or the second order. You are either currently living like you believe the first order, that you believe and then you're saved and then you obey, or you are living like you believe, you believe in Jesus, you obey, and then you're saved. When we follow the first order, the true gospel order, we align our lives with God's kingdom out of joy and freedom and gratitude. Think about it. Think about how it works. We forgive others not because we're hoping that by forgiving others, God may forgive us. We forgive others because of how much God has already forgiven us. All right? We love others, even our enemies, because we've been loved so much by God. We welcome sinners of all kinds because we have received a joyful welcome from Jesus himself. Now, think about, you're either living like that, you're either living like that, or you're living the second way. When you follow the second order, you do some of the same things. Obey God, care for the poor, forgive, love, you're, you're kind, but you do them for a different reason. When you follow the second order, we forgive others so that God might forgive us. We love others so that God might respond and love us. We fellowship with others in hopes that one day God might accept us. Forgetting the order of the gospel changes how you live out the gospel. If you live according to that second order, you are going to be anxious, you are going to be weary, and, and honestly, it's, it's a more selfish way to live. Because as you're sacrificing for others, you're not really sacrificing just for their sake. You're, you're doing it hoping that God may, you know, help you, may bless you. When you remember the order of the gospel, it helps you align all of your life with the gospel itself. So, are you following the first order, or are you following the second order? Are you, are you obeying? Are you loving? Are you forgiving? Are you aligning your life with, with God's kingdom principles because you're hoping he might bless you for it? that he may give you something in return or that you're trying to prove yourself to be a good person or to be worthy? Or are, are you doing all of those things because of what God has already done for you and provided for you in Jesus? If you follow the second order, your life is going to be a contradiction of the gospel. When, you, when you're in, in step with the first order, that you believe in Jesus, then you're saved, then you obey him, 
it is, it is likely that your life is actually going to reflect the gospel itself. Peter, through his actions, through his life, and, and we are so prone to, we're, we're so prone to change that order up and, and to live according to that second order. Okay, the order of the gospel. All right, second building block for a healthy gospel culture is the centrality of the gospel. The centrality of the gospel. So, this, this beautiful truth, this beautiful truth that, that Paul outlines for us in verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, this truth that you are not justified or made right with God on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of mere faith in what Jesus has done for you, when that reality becomes your identity, becomes the core of who you are, becomes central to you, then it completely changes the way that you live. So, if we're going to not only hold the line of gospel doctrine, and we need to, we're going to fight for it, to hold the line, to be orthodox, to remain faithful to what we believe, but if we're also going to walk the line of gospel culture. We need to properly situate the gospel in our lives. What role does the gospel actually play in your life? The gospel's only proper place in our church, we say it often, and especially in our lives, is right at the center. Right at the center. That's its only proper place. In order for our conduct to testify to the truth of the gospel, the gospel must be the central hub from which we make decisions. The gospel must form our identity. And here's what I love about what Paul does. Paul's response to this situation in Antioch is so counterintuitive. Think about it for a second. He doesn't introduce a wisdom paradigm. He doesn't introduce a wisdom paradigm. He doesn't say, uh, Peter was foolish. Peter was foolish, and Peter was foolish. He could have said that. It was a foolish choice. It was a foolish decision. And so here's a wise alternative. Here's what, here's what you should do in a situation like this. He doesn't do that. Paul doesn't introduce a moral paradigm. He doesn't just say, Peter was wrong. Peter was wrong. It's like, Peter, that is, that, that's, that's a racist position that you just took. It's a classist position. You were saying that because you were Jewish, not because you are in Christ, but because you are Jewish, you are superior to other people who are your equal brothers in Christ. That's wrong could have said that he would have been right but he doesn't say that he doesn't introduce this moral paradigm where he says peter was wrong here's the right thing here's what's right paul introduces a gospel paradigm he introduces a gospel paradigm peter's actions contradicted the gospel and that's what he's most concerned about and so here's what he says he says so here's what the gospel is and here's how it functions in our lives peter he would say to him if he applied this passage. You are justified by grace, by your simple faith in Jesus, not by works of the law. You have been freely accepted by God on the basis of what he has done, not what you have done. Now go and do likewise with these Gentile Christians. Peter was practically nullifying the grace of God in the gospel and treating the death of Jesus as pointless. So, for Christians, God's grace and the cross of Christ 
are everything. They are the epicenter. They are the core. What does this really mean when we say this? Because we say it a lot. We say it a lot. And if you've ever wondered, here's what I mean very simply. You don't have to justify yourself. You you don't have to justify yourself. You are justified by God through Christ. You are accepted fully and freely and forever by God through Christ. If that simple idea, that concept, that reality became central to who you are, how would it change how you live? How would it change your life? How would you view others? How would you treat others? You are free from the drive, from the hunt that we talked about at the beginning of the service. You are free from that drive to prove yourself worthy and valuable through your career or through your relationships. When you try to justify yourself through performance, you will turn into one of two kinds of people. Either you'll be a very successful person who looks down on others on the basis of your success, or you will fail. You will fail. You'll be an unsuccessful person who is bitter towards others and seek value and justification somewhere else. But when you see that your justification comes from outside of you, from the performance of Jesus in your place, you realize that your worth and your value are connected to his work and his performance and his success. Your identity then is bound to Christ. When you see yourself this way, when the gospel becomes central to your identity, there is nothing this world can throw at you to change the way you live. The Jewish bullies can come. And if Peter has the gospel centrally focused into his identity and who he is, they cannot bully him or scare him into changing the way he treats the Gentile Christians. Have you ever considered what this really famous verse means? Galatians 2.20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is an identity verse. That is an identity verse. Gospel culture can be and is lived out in every human culture, in every socioeconomic class. Gospel culture is present when we are thriving and it is present when we are suffering. No outside pressure can change us. Because we are those whose lives are deeply rooted in God's grace to us, freely offered in Jesus. Our identity is so tied to Jesus, it's as if we no longer live. Our identity is so tied to him, it's as if we no longer live. So the gospel becomes our new worldview. We see the world in a completely different way because of who we now are in Jesus, because of what we have in him. We've been given new eyes. And when Peter withdrew fellowship, he's looking at these Gentile Christians with his old eyes. And Paul says this is not going to do. So now, we don't simply make decisions. We don't funnel decisions through questions of wisdom or ethics. When we're we're faced with a situation similar to what Peter has here, we have to ask, what course of action is in closest alignment with the grace of God and the purpose of the cross. 
when the gospel is at the center of our church and the center of our lives, a death happens. A death happens. Our self-centered, terrified, hypocritical views, ideas, actions, and attitudes must die in order for the gospel to reign as the dominant vision for our church and for our lives. So this is what Peter needed to hear, and this is what I need to hear, this is what you need to hear. You no longer live. You no longer live. It's Christ who lives in you. So if, if you are trying to prove yourself worthy, to justify your existence, to justify yourself through your work, through your accomplishments, through your relationships, or through spiritual religious activity, would you stop and would you just rest? Would you come to Jesus by faith and rest and find an identity that is secure, that is purchased, that is given to you? Given to you. When that happens, and if you've already experienced that, how will that affect how we treat other people? Now we forgive, now we love, now we welcome with full hospitality, not to try to earn something, to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves, but because all of that's already taken care of. Christ doesn't rebuild walls. He doesn't rebuild walls. That's, that's what Paul rebukes Peter with here. Even in even in verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And then in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. A healthy church is a church that believes the gospel and lives in line with the gospel. There isn't a single area of your life that should remain untouched by the gospel. It touches everything. It touches every single area of your life. So the question for each of us this morning is, which areas of my life need gospel alignment? Do my actions and attitudes and words in this area of my life accurately reflect the gospel that I believe? And if the answer is no, then we need an alignment. When the gospel remains at the center of our lives, our actions will be consistent with our beliefs. And it's not going to look perfect. And we're going to fail. And sometimes we're going to need what Peter needed. We're going to need correction. But Christ is visible in us when we walk, even when we stumble, in line with his gospel. Let me pray for us. God, it's a, it's a simple concept, a simple idea. We pray that you would drive it deep in our hearts that we can be healthy in terms of what we believe and unhealthy in how we live. We all 